The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. And maybe you could move these two chairs since there's nobody in them. <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> just, just, yeah, move them to the back. Thank you. So, um, I've been, for the last some time, I've been talking about the Eightfold Path. And um, today we're starting on a kind of a new section of the Eightfold Path, the, the aspect of mental cultivation. And so I just wanted to review the kind of the framework of the Eightfold Path and put this section into context. So the, uh, the Eightfold Path, of course, consists of eight um, factors. And those eight factors are placed into what we could call three sections. There's a wisdom component, uh, an ethical conduct component, and a mental cultivation component. So the first two aspects of the Eightfold Path, wise understanding and wise intention, belong to the wisdom aspect. And this is the... Uh, it's kind of pointing to the turning of our mind towards the Dharma and towards the, uh, the truth of how suffering arises for us. The whole Eightfold Path is kind of uh, an exploration from the perspective of what causes our suffering in our lives. This was the problem, essentially, that the Buddha set out to understand, is what is this suffering, and, and how is it that people going through their lives trying to be happy end up suffering so much? So this term of suffering, of, uh, it's a translation for the Pali word dukkha, um, suffering's... An okay translation of that term, but it's a little, from, from our English perspective, it's a little more large in a way than what we, what dukkha refers to. I mean, dukkha does refer to the, to the suffering in the large, but it also refers to very subtle kinds of suffering. Uh, just simple ways that we feel like things are just not quite right. Yesterday I was doing something and feeling just a little bit of impatience. Oh, I was waiting at a light, that's what it was. <laughs> I was waiting at a light and a little bit of my mind was thinking, you know, I should have made that left turn and gone around and you know, not have to be sitting here at that light. And in that moment I recognized, you know, this is dukkha. This is suffering right here, you know, in this moment of just feeling like I could have done this better. You know, here I am sitting here. It's, it, was, it was a not acknowledging of this is what's happening. You know, it's, this, is, this is what's happening. I'm sitting at this light. I can't go back and do it over. Here I am. So even that, even the small ways that we feel a little bit of impatience or a little bit of anxiousness, this too is dukkha. And so the Buddha was looking for a, a, uh, a way to um, understand this dukkha as a way to transform it and transcend it a way to, to see if it was possible to be free of this suffering, to be free of this 
unsatisfactoriness we feel with our lives, a kind of an unsatisfactoriness that's pervasive. It's way more pervasive than we even acknowledge sometimes. And the wisdom aspect of the path, what, what it's pointing to is that this unsatisfactoriness that we feel is primarily created in our own minds. It's created in how our minds meet the world, that we resist what's happening in the world. We want it to be different, or we want to hold on to what's happening. We think, yeah, this is just perfect. I've got to keep it just like this. And even in the meeting of something being feeling just right, there's a little bit of stress because we know that it's not going to last. It is going to change. And that very holding on to trying to keep it the same is a form of a feeling that things aren't quite satisfactory. You know, we know that it's going to change, and that's not satisfying to us, that we know it's going to change. And so the Buddha pointed us to, you know, it's actually something in our minds. It's this resistance, it's the wanting that is kind of the, the root of our suffering. And so the the wisdom teachings of the Buddha point us to this truth that most of our suffering is, is created by our relationship to the world. It's created by a reactivity to what's happening. Now there is, there is what we might call suffering also, you know, if the body gets damaged, you know, we're in a car accident, we have an illness. There is a kind of physical uh, form of pain of unpleasant experience that we often call suffering, uh, that's not what this uh, suffering that the Buddha was talking about refers to. He acknowledged that that is going to happen to us. It's not going to change. Our, no matter what we do, we are going to find ourselves subject to aging, illness, death, separation from what we love, and uh, so just this kind of endless um, stream of kind of physical uh, unpleasantness. However, when we begin to look at that too, we see that much of what we suffer around, around those things, around aging, illness, death of partners or even in facing our own death, much of where the suffering lies actually is not in the physical unpleasantness, but in our mental reaction to it. That we resist all of these. We don't like the fact that we grow old, that we get sick, that we die. We don't like the fact that what we love becomes separated from us. So the, uh, that mental reactivity, again, that's where a lot of the suffering is. It's really quite interesting in, in meditation when we settle into our experience and begin to actually be able to meet the, the, the experience as it is. We find that the mind can meet unpleasant experience. The mind can meet pleasant experience without reactivity. It can meet it with a balance of mind. And in that meeting of experience with a balance of mind. We really see how so much of what we call pain, actually, actually is in our minds. It's in our reaction to our unpleasant experience. 
And so these wisdom teachings of the Buddha, they start to reorient us. You know, we learn a, a little bit about this. And it's, I know that for myself, you know, when I first started hearing about this, or before I heard about the teachings of the Buddha, I was quite convinced that the reason I was suffering was because that person was doing that thing, or... You know, it's like if they would stop doing that thing, then that would be that would be okay. I mean, it's like it was it was the fault of things out there that I was suffering. And uh, you know, hearing this teaching, it's like, you know, it's really it's it's in here. Okay, let me check this out. Um, so if these teachings begin to resonate with us, this forms the ground of 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 intention to begin to engage with this with these teachings. And the Buddha offered the teachings and also practices. Actually, the, the main form of wisdom in the Buddha's teaching is the teaching of the Four Noble Truths. And the Four Noble Truths themselves, there is suffering, there is a cause of suffering, there is uh, an ending, there's a possibility that there's an ending to suffering and there's a path leading to the ending of suffering. These are statements... Um, that are not simply statements to be believed, but they are statements that have actions associated with them. So they're practices, actually. They're meant to be engaged with. So the suggestion is to understand our suffering. Get to know our suffering. Turn towards it. Don't run from it. Don't try to necessarily try to fix it or change it right away, but understand it first. Because so much of our suffering comes from reactivity, that we're immediately re- reacting to what's happening and not taking the time to really look at what's going on. And when we begin to look at what's going on, we can begin to learn more skillful responses as opposed to our habitual immediate reactivity. We can begin to, to respond to our pain in skillful ways. So... The teachings here are not simply about, yes, meet things as they are, you know, kind of like sit, sit as a lump on a log, you know, yep, things as they are, yep, things as they are. That's a, a kind of a misunderstanding of what the Buddha taught. You know, he actually um, encouraged us to act skillfully. So rather than reacting out of greed, aversion, delusion, to act out of kindness, compassion, wisdom, balance of mind. So it's a kind of a turning of our minds towards skillfulness, turning of our minds towards skillful intention, as opposed to our habitual uh, reactive intentions. That, that if we're not paying attention, we're kind of automatically, in a way, acting out of our habits and patterns which are usually grounded in greed and aversion and delusion. We don't like things. We want to get rid of them. Push them away. Fix things. Change things. We like things. We want to hold on to it. So that's our kind of habitual reactivity. And if we're not paying attention, that's how we'll be acting. And so the, the wise intention of the second aspect of the Eightfold Path begins to um, incline us towards cultivating things that support us moving away from suffering, inclines us towards cultivating skillfulness in our lives, things that um, take us away from suffering, 
move us towards happiness. So this uh, moves us to the second aspect of the Eightfold Path, the ethical section. And the, you know, the understanding basically is, you know, if we're trying to reduce suffering, then we should behave in ways that don't cause suffering. So to look at our actions and see, are our actions causing harm to ourselves and others? So this is a, this is kind of the area of ethical conduct. Can we, in our behavior, look at what might be causing harm and refrain from those actions that would cause harm? So most of the ethical conduct section is framed as actions to avoid in uh, wise speech, avoiding um, untrue speech, refraining from speaking falsehood, refraining from speaking harshly, refraining from speaking in a divisive manner, you know, dividing people from each other, and also refraining from useless or pointless speech, you know, that just speech that doesn't have any purpose. Wise action points us to refraining from um, taking life, refraining from taking what's not given, refraining from sexual misconduct. And wise livelihood encourages us to engage in, um, as lay people, to engage in work that is skillful, that doesn't require us to act in unskillful ways. It doesn't require us to lie or kill or steal. It doesn't require us to speak harshly. So the um, ethical conduct section of the path kind of points us to kind of the the outer uh, way of how we interact with the world and coming into harmony with the world, coming into harmony with our um, co-workers, our friends, our families those people that we don't know, just people that we meet on the street or in the stores or in banks. Part of the understanding, I think, around the ethical conduct section is that um, it's, a, it's a kind of a... We, we're protecting others in our ethical actions, but at, a, at a, another level, we're also protecting ourselves because those those, um, the actions that are, that cause harm, those kind of grosser actions that cause harm, are usually motivated out of unwholesome, unskillful mental states of mind. They're motivated out of greed, aversion, delusion. And so by refraining from acting in those ways, we're protecting ourselves from those unwholesome states, as, as well as protecting ourselves from, you know, the backlash that comes when people are treated in harmful ways. So we're protecting ourselves as well as protecting others. And the, again, the understanding the Eightfold Path, the process of the Eightfold Path is what will support us to come to the end of this, this dukkha, the, the mental, the ways that we uh, create this reactivity in our minds. It's not just our behavior that creates suffering for ourselves, and we know this. We know that in our minds, when we feel angry, it doesn't feel very good. 
You know, when, when that is coming up in our minds. And a lot of what we, you know, the, a lot of the reason why we act out of those things is because that feeling feels so bad. We feel like, well, there's got to be something I can do about this. I've got to make them stop. So that, uh, that anger often motivates, you know, it feels so bad and it motivates us to do something. So the, um, the ethical conduct aspect of the path is trying to help us to, rather than acting on these uh, unskillful mental states, to instead turn to look at them. And this is where the third component of the eight, for the third, the third section of the Eightfold Path comes in, that of mental cultivation. And this comprises wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration. And it, um, it really is the, it's that kind of the work where we begin to meet the suffering, the internal kind of suffering. You know, there's suffering that's created by our interaction with the world and the ethical conduct section helps to bring that into harmony. But then we see there's all of this dukkha around not getting what we want, around having what we like go away from us, around confusion in our minds about what should I be doing? So there's this internal suffering. The mental cultivation aspect of the Eightfold Path begins to address that internal climate, the ways in which our own minds create suffering for ourselves. So we uh, train the mind using wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration. And this supports the three actually work together. Wise effort is framed primarily in terms of the effort we make to cultivate skillful mental states and let go of unskillful mental states. And uh, mindfulness, we need the mindfulness to understand how we're acting in the world. We can't really know what's skillful and unskillful without that quality of mindfulness. So they, they're really, they really, they, they're it's kind of like the Eightfold Path in, as a whole is like strands within a rope. It's not like you work at one and then you work at the next one and then you work at the next one. They really intertwine and support each other. So the understanding, from wise understanding about what is skillful, what is unskillful, supports our effort, our intention to act in that way and our effort to engage in the training. That training requires us to be mindful, requires us to know what's happening, how we're, how we're responding to the world. The mindfulness is what helps us to see, oh, that's skillful, that's unskillful, that's greed, that's aversion. And the combination of the effort and the mindfulness together, that as we engage in exploring our patterns, our habits, bringing mindfulness to them. Those two together uh, begin to support the quality of concentration. That the uh, concentration actually comes as we make the effort to be mindful. So effort and mindfulness together begin begin to bring the concentration into uh, 
into our mind stream. And with that concentration, which is based around this wisdom, because we're the, the, the whole Eightfold Path is pointing us in the direction of letting go of dukkha, understanding our dukkha. Because that concentration is, is kind of guiding us in that direction, we begin to understand more clearly through that concentration, the, the, the concentration basically meaning kind of a, a continual ability to be mindful, a mindfulness that's, that's a little bit more continuous. And this doesn't mean like for a whole day. You might have, you know, five seconds of mindfulness coming together and see something in a moment of how your mind is headed towards anger. And because the mind is continuously mindful, for those five seconds while that anger is beginning to arise, the mind sees, oh, I don't think I'll go that way. It can happen in short moments. So, you know, that, that factor of concentration can come up whew, for just a few moments and support our understanding, support that wisdom. And so, it, again, it kind of loops back and reinforces the, the thread of those eight factors together. We begin to understand more directly these teachings of wisdom. So that it's not just an idea. We see in our own minds how you know, anger beginning to arise and then the mind seeing, oh, not, I don't need to go there. And seeing for ourselves the kind of freedom that results from that, letting go of, that, of the mind heading in that direction. So all of these aspects of the path, they're, they're intertwined. They're, they're kind of, I like the term eightfold. You know, I kind of think of all of the aspects of the path folded together on top of each other. They're not separate. When we cultivate one of them, we're cultivating all of them. So let's see, what time is it? Um, so I mostly want to, I, I, I want to stop there for just a second and see if there's any questions. Um, I, I kind of want to um, do an overview of right effort since that's where we are in the, in the uh, series. But just to see uh, whether there's any questions or comments about what I've already said. to see you, Andrew. <laughs> Thank you. Is that, is that on? Is the, is the mic on? Yeah, it's on. Okay. Um, last night, uh, Gil talked about concentration. And I really heard it. I was very much touched by it. <clears throat> and then when I left, I thought, how much he gives up? I don't think it's giving up. He releases uh, to get to that stage, and that that is the whole message really is to let go of what we think uh, is going to make us happy it 's really <laughs> to just let go of all of it but, um, and the Buddhists always have five stages and five this and eight that and um, it was clear he 's experienced this. And I wondered if concentration is something you do just as you're meditating, or is it something you c- try to carry with you the rest of the day? So, you know, as, as I just um, mentioned, you know, the, 
the, they, all, they all work together. And actually, we can live our lives with all of these factors. Um, so the, you know, we, we do cultivate concentration in our um, sitting practice, but the, the kind of the daily life um, way that concentration comes into play is through cultivating the effort to be mindful as we're going through our day. So um, the, this, um, we, can, we can bring a mindful attention to what's unfolding moment after moment in our day. And it takes effort. It takes effort to do that. But in that effort and mindfulness combined, we'll get moments, we'll get times where the mindfulness is kind of just landing on experience and present. And for that, as I just said, like five seconds, concentration is present. It's not an absorbed kind of concentration. It's what we could call a moment-to-moment concentration where the awareness is stable. It's not kind of thrown off. We know when our, when our, um, our uh, awareness is not stable, whatever arises for us, you know, we see something, you know, or we think something and we immediately leap onto that thing and start doing something with it. We start thinking about it. We start planning about how to respond to it or react to it. I mean, it's like immediately our minds are out of the present moment in our normal way of experiencing things. We see that spot on the carpet and it's like, oh, I've got to do something about that spot. Or, or um, you know, somebody says something and immediately we, we think about how, what should I be saying back? You know, we're not present in the moment, noticing, oh, noticing the spot on the carpet. She's like, yeah, that's there in this moment. It's not appropriate for me to get up and go get cleaning material in this moment to do something about that. You know, hearing what somebody has to say, actually, can I, I listen and notice how I'm responding? Can I be aware of what's happening? So that begins to cultivate a stability of awareness which then uh, allows us to not immediately leap out into the thoughts. So that stability of awareness gives us the, 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 the little gap where some wisdom can come in, you know, that we don't have to immediately react. We can see our mind moving out or having the tendency to move out towards reactivity and settle back. So that's a form of concentration. It's a stable witness, yes. Yeah. Speak into the mic. I discovered that word this morning when I was reading uh, in a different type of uh, book I was reading with. I just thought that's what I wanted to be as a stable witness. Yes, and that is a form of concentration. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So let me talk a little bit about wise effort. You know, because actually... Effort, wise effort, um, in some ways, you know, as I said a few minutes ago, if we, if we don't do anything, if we just allow our, you know, if, we, if we don't try to do anything different, what happens in our experience is that we uh, live out our conditioning, you know, that we, uh, our, our, our habits and patterns kind of make our choices for us. 
um, you know, I had a strong, um, I'm not sure why my mind got cultivated in this direction, but it did move towards anger. It wasn't, it wasn't so much a, 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 a violent lashing out, it was lashed back at myself. Um, but, you know, it's like I, I would go into a room and it's like, oh, I don't like that, and that person's not very nice. And, you know, it's like that was my orientation to the world. And without any awareness and cultivation, uh, you know, without any effort made in another direction, the mind goes in the direction that it's cultivated. And the Buddha said, whatever one frequently ponders, that becomes the inclination of the mind. And so if we've, you know, frequently acted on anger, aversion, or wanting, or delusion, when we're not aware, mindful, making an effort, that's what's going to unfold for us. That's how we're going to be responding most of the time. And so it takes some effort. And the, the whole, I think of the whole of the spiritual path as kind of like, you know, it's kind of like turning a battleship. You know, there's so much momentum of our, of our habits and patterns in a certain direction. And, um, you know, if we don't make any effort, that momentum is just going to keep carrying us in that direction. And so effort is needed to even, you know, begin this spiritual path. The effort is needed to begin turning that battleship little bit by little bit. And we don't, you know, it's not like a split second. It's like, oh, I see that's not so helpful. Let me go the other way. You know, the the momentum behind our habits and patterns is so strong that it takes a continual um, kind of a resolve to keep making that effort, to keep trying to let go of what is unwholesome and to cultivate what is wholesome. And so wise effort in the... Um, eightfold path is usually defined in four with four aspects to it. It's defined as um, the effort towards the avoiding, or it's actually usually phrased as the non-arising. The effort towards the non-arising of unwholesome states that have not yet arisen. Um, the effort towards the abandoning of unwholesome states that have arisen the effort towards the cultivation of wholesome states that have not yet arisen, and the effort towards the maintaining or sustaining of wholesome states that have arisen. So it's kind of like you can think of a grid, you know, (laughs) four-part grid. It's like, is it present? Is an unwholesome state present or is a wholesome state present? If an unwholesome state is is present, can you abandon it? Can you let it go? If a wholesome state is present, Can you cultivate it, support it? If an unwholesome state is not present, what can you do to to keep unwholesome states from arising? If wholesome states are not present, what can you do to support wholesome states to arise? So today, what I'd mostly like to, to review is, you know, just... To, to talk about a little bit is about the the first two, the the um, looking at whether there's an unwholesome state present, or uh, and and how we can let go of it, and how we can also avoid having unwholesome states, unskillful states arise in our minds. 
And next week I'll go into the other aspect of wise effort, the cultivating of the wholesome. So the non-arising of unwholesome states that have not arisen, that one, the way it's phrased, usually sounds kind of complicated. <laughs> um, but basically what it is pointing to is when there, when that we need to kind of understand that our minds kind of head in this direction habitually. That because of the way minds work, and it's not personal, it's not just you (laughs) that you tend to react to unpleasant things. It's not just you that you tend to want to hold on to pleasant things. This is a human preoccupation, a human condition. So that to, to know that because of the way that we've been conditioned, not only in our own lives, but kind of the conditioning of society, but the conditioning just of being human, that we tend to react. When things are unpleasant, we don't like them, we don't want them. When things are pleasant, we like them, we want to hang on to them. Because, in a sense, because we want happiness. We do ultimately want some kind of happiness, but we, so this is part of where the delusion comes in. We really misunderstand how happiness can be found. And we're very short-sighted about where happiness can be found. It's like we'll just go for the closest bit of happiness that there is. It's like something unpleasant right here, better get rid of it. Something pleasant right here, want to hold on to it. So it's, it's very short-sighted. And in that process, you know, we're, we're perhaps missing the larger picture of what might bring us a deeper kind of happiness than just trying to have what's pleasant and get rid of what's unpleasant. So the, uh, the first two aspects of um, right effort, can we let go of unwholesome states that have not arisen? Or can we uh, um, avoid but not incline our minds in that direction of unwholesome states that have not arisen and can we let go of unwholesome states that have arisen so the first one the um, cultivation or the um, the effort towards the non-arising of unwholesome states that have not arisen is a way of kind of acknowledging yeah if I'm if I'm not paying attention you know my mind's going to tend to go in unwholesome ways so bringing the mindfulness in and to, you know, the, the aspect of um, ethical conduct also supports this. Because if we're not engaged in ethical conduct, we are tending to act out in ways that reinforce those unwholesome mind states. And so the, the, the engaging with ethical conduct is a way of supporting this part of right effort. That we are... Noticing what gets us into trouble, you know, these actions, these actions that um, the ethical conduct suggests that we avoid, if we act on those, they tend to get us into trouble. Not only in the outer world, but also in the inner world. So avoiding those actions is one way to cultivate this right effort. So this is, again, a way in which these factors of the Eightfold Path are intertwined. That, the, that cultivating wise um, ethical conduct is, this, is one of these aspects of wise effort. 
It helps us to avoid unwholesome states that have not arisen, to avoid engaging in unethical conduct. That's just kind of the, the, the grossest form, the most obvious form of this practice. The next kind of layer down is to begin to look in our own minds. What is it that tends to create um, suffering in our minds? Looking at what creates suffering in our minds and seeing, beginning to learn through mindfulness, beginning to explore with mindfulness, what, what are the conditions that take us there? What is it that, what, what is it that creates agitation in our minds? What is it that creates anger? in our minds. What happens? What is it that creates the desire to hold on to something in our minds? So beginning to understand those conditions, we can begin to learn how to avoid those conditions. So just a simple example, you know, um, perhaps you notice that engaging in political discussions with somebody who has different political opinions brings Um, argument, anger, frustration, kind of mutual hostility. Sometimes with some people maybe we can engage in in a dialogue and it it doesn't bring that up with other people, maybe it does. You know, one way to look at this would be to just say, okay, just don't go there with certain people. You know, so that's a way of avoiding the unwholesome states of mind. And that's, um, we can also, using that, you know, we might, we might say, okay, well, so, you know, I see that I get agitated whenever, um, you know, that person comes over for dinner with, to, to have, a, a, you know, a meeting, you know, my, when my partner's best friend comes over, I get really agitated, and so I'll just always be gone, you know, when, when that person comes over. Now, that's one way to think about this teaching on wise effort, and yet a kind of a more subtle manifestation or a subtler way to look at this is to begin to be mindful. You know, can you understand what is the agitation about? So this kind of carries us into the next aspect of wise effort, is beginning to, um, well, the, 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 um, the phrasing is to let go of or abandon unwholesome states that have arisen. So we, we, we might think that, okay, so there's this agitation that comes because, you know, this person's coming over, and, you know, to abandon that, then the best thing to do is to get out of here. That's, again, that's one way to work with it. And there are ways that we can um, actively let go of difficult states when they're present for us. You know, we can um, um, we can kind of turn our minds in a different direction. You know, bring a meta into our minds, or um, just choose to not think about what's agitating us. Again, this is a kind. This is these are these are ways that we can actively let go. We can actively redirect our minds. So replacing thoughts that are surrounding this difficulty, you know, this person coming over, we, we might be having thoughts about, you know, ways they've treated us or things they've said to us, and our minds kind of cycle around those thoughts. Instead, you might actively replace that with thoughts about ways in which 
you've um, actually connected with them in the past or kind things that they've done. You know, kind of to reorient your thoughts. That's one way to actively let go of unwholesome states that have arisen. Another way may be um, like redirecting attention away from the, the difficulty. So this, for me, this kind of more works when I'm uh, alone and something is arising just in my own mind because, you know, I've thought of something. You know, I've thought about this person that makes me angry and anger arises. You know, okay, so there it is. Um, you know, so there I am, you know, walking down the street, thought arises, anger arises, a way of actively, of actively letting go of that might be to redirect the attention. So don't keep thinking about that person. You know, turn your attention to something else in your experience. Actively letting go of that, um, the process, because, you know, that person in your mind tends to generate thoughts of anger. If, if it's difficult to be aware in that moment of the, of the anger, difficult to uh, um, to be mindful because you know sometimes when something like that comes up the the momentum or the habit in a direction is so strong it's like even trying to be mindful of it just kind of pulls us into the black hole of that experience if that happens for you it's really helpful to learn how to redirect your attention let go of that pattern of thinking i Turn my, it's kind of like I go, not now. Turn my attention to, you know, feet on the ground. You know, I'm taking a walk. So just feet on the ground, seeing the trees, seeing the sky, feeling the breeze. Actively turning the attention away from that experience. So these are ways that we can kind of let go of unwholesome mind states. Actively let go of unwholesome mind states. But I think that in our practice, in our mindfulness practice, one of the largest terrains of our practice is to learn how to be mindful of these unwholesome states. To learn how to meet and be aware of these unwholesome states is a form of letting go. The, 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 what I think of... Um, happening it's kind of when we're not mindful of our unwholesome states it's like you know it's like there's there's a gear going you know it's like we've got we've got a, the the emotion and then the thoughts and they're just kind of reinforcing each other and it's like you know gears in place here and the 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 emotion is getting stronger it's being wound up by the thoughts the thoughts are getting stronger it's being wound up by the emotion and it's just like this feedback loop and the gears are engaged and they're just strengthening that pattern that's that momentum essentially with mindfulness what we can do, what happens, what my experience is of this is we turn towards the feeling, turn towards the experience of that difficult state. Seeing if we can let go of the thoughts in favor of feeling the feeling. And what this does is it like disengages the gears so that we feel the momentum. We feel the experience of the unwholesome state and yet we're no longer feeding it you know it's no longer um, locked in with the thoughts and so you know the analogy I like to use here is you know if you're going down the freeway 
going really fast down the freeway, you've got your foot on the accelerator. If you take your foot off the accelerator and put the car into neutral, that's disengaging the gears. The car doesn't stop when you do that. It's carried by the momentum. But it will come to a stop because you're no longer feeding it. You're no longer engaged. The gears are no longer engaged, so it will come to a stop. And so the mindfulness can function this way in um, observing our difficult states of mind. That it's like disengaging the gear. It doesn't stop the uh, difficult state from being felt in the body and mind, but it will come to an end because we're no longer feeding it. Now that's the ideal with mindfulness. I mean, what typically happens is we're able to be mindful a little bit and then we think a little bit and then we're mindful a little bit and then we think a little bit. So it's kind of like going like, you know, engage the gears, disengage, engage, disengage, engage, disengage. So it, it's a slow, it's a slow process. It's turning that battleship. But it is a form of letting go. And this is a large part of our practice, is this form of wise effort turning to meet our difficulty, learning what it means to disengage the gear, and actually beginning to appreciate what it feels like when the gear is disengaged. We begin to recognize, oh, you know, it, it, we, we, we're beginning to cultivate, and this will head us to, to what we'll talk about more next week, we're beginning to cultivate wholesome qualities of mind. We're cultivating mindfulness. We're cultivating compassion. We're cultivating kindness as we're bringing that mindfulness to our experience. And so we're strengthening the wholesome and allowing the unwholesome to begin to unwind. So more questions, more comments. We've got a few more minutes. I find that when I most need mindfulness, um, when I'm in you know the worst kind of state, is when I least have the energy to make the effort. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, that's a, that's a great a great question. It is a challenge. I mean, partly you know that's pointing to essentially part of what I was saying before that um, you know when the momentum is really strong, you know that that we're just so pulled in that direction. It's kind of like sometimes trying to bring mindfulness to that thing. It's kind of like, you know, the mindfulness is, is a little weak and the power or the momentum of the habit is like a tsunami that's just like <laughs> swamping our ability to be mindful. And so even trying to be mindful of that experience in that time just kind of loops us back into that um, that experience. So it, it keeps us kind of caught. So the, the not now practice that I just talked about a few minutes ago is the one that I use in that kind of cir- circumstance. It's like I, I acknowledge, yep, I feel that, yep, okay. So it's a clear acknowledging of that difficulty. And then there's the kind of acknowledgement too, yeah, and I see that the mindfulness isn't quite strong enough to meet that right now. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let that be and I'm going to just put my intention someplace else. Now, that, as I said a few minutes ago, that works when you're alone. You know, if you're in a difficult conversation with somebody, often, 
you know, you just have to kind of um, accept the fact that in certain situations, mindfulness is just going to be gone. (laughs) And then what you can do is when you are alone, you might in that um, use a kind of a reflective practice to help you to understand what was going on for you. So one thing I suggest with this kind of a thing is, um, so, you know, find a time, maybe at the end of the day, something difficult has happened where you've just not been able to be mindful, you know, and and you maybe found that um, some things happened that you wished hadn't happened. So later in the day, when you can settle down, take some time and just sit with yourself Let yourself settle with breathing. Let yourself settle just a little bit. Maybe for two or three minutes, just settle down in the way you normally would meditating. And then allow yourself to bring that situation into your mind. You don't need to do much of it. You know, maybe a second's worth is enough. (laughs) You know, just bring up that image of being with that person or that conversation or that situation, just bring up a little bit of that situation in your mind, however that works for you, whether it's telling yourself the story a little bit or just bringing up an image of being with that person. And then let that go and feel what that's done to you. Because um, even just a little bit of bringing up charged situations will regenerate, in a way, the emotional experience. And so in that space where you're not right in the midst of a, of a conflict, you can feel the feelings. You can begin to learn what it means. You'll begin to see the mind picking up, oh, but he shouldn't have said that. She shouldn't have done that. Oh, okay, here's the feeling. Oh, but there, oh, okay. You know, just, so you begin to see that back and forth. And because you're alone, you have the opportunity to cultivate the skills around meeting the feeling and letting go of the, of the reactivity. So that, you know, I I like to recommend that kind of a practice from time to time to to begin to cultivate that uh, capacity in us. Any other questions or still have a few minutes? Let me see if there's anything else I could mention. Um, one one aspect of the kind of effort to unvo- un- avoid unwholesome states that have not arisen is that as that mindfulness gets more continuous, um, that concentration I was talking about with the the more continuity of awareness. The mindfulness 
combined with this understanding of what's skillful and unskillful, begins to be a form of avoiding. You know, well, we can see that and as the mindfulness gets more continuous, we start to see little, you know, tiny movements perhaps. Now, I remember one, one situation for myself, very kind of crucial insight early in my practice. I've talked about it a lot. I'll just briefly talk about it here. I had been paying attention to anger a lot and um, noticing that experience, you know, using this kind of right effort of being with that anger. And uh, one day I was doing something and I, in that process I wasn't really particularly trying, I need to be mindful, you know, I was, uh, but I was just present, I was just kind of present. And in that process I saw a thought arise in my mind about the person that, that was, you know, kind of one of the triggers for that anger. And I saw that thought come up. But I saw, because the mind was aware in that moment, I could see that the thought was in my mind about this person, but anger was not in my mind yet. And I could also see that there was a kind of a momentum of, oh yeah, let me jump on that thought and think more thoughts just in order to get angry. Because the mindfulness was pretty present, and because I had spent time in the space of anger, you know, for the months preceding this, I had spent time in that space of, this is anger, yep, this is what it feels like, oh yeah, this is not pleasant. The mind knew very deeply the suffering of anger. It also had begun to understand that it belie- the mind believed at some level that that anger was going to do something to that person. You know, that that was kind of the motivation for it in a way. Yeah, I want that person to suffer too. So in that moment when the mind saw that thought and saw that kind of, ooh, you know, that, that almost that intention to jump on that thought and think more thoughts in order to get angry, having spent enough time in the space of, yeah, anger is suffering, the mind itself chose to not go there. Because the mindfulness was present, I didn't have to say, oh, let me abandon that. It was kind of like, you know, reaching out and touching a pot on a hot stove and the, the, the body goes, oh, you know, it withdraws very quickly because it's burned. It was kind of like that. So the, mind, the mind knew. I didn't have to say, oh, don't go there. The mind itself knew. That way lies suffering. And so it avoided that circumstance. And so as the mindfulness gets more continuous, as the concentration comes into play, the mindfulness combined with wisdom begins to support this skillful avoidance. So we need to stop and we'll continue uh, this conversation next week. So thank you for your attention.